So today, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 to 12. Seeing the crowds, the crowds he went up to and on the mountains, and we sat down with this man came to him. He opened mouth and taught them, saying, Best are the poor in spirit for those in the kingdom of heaven. Blessing are those who wound for those who be comforted. <clears throat> Blessing are the milks for them shield and seriously the hurt. Blessing are those who hunger and thirsty for righteousness, for those who be sacrificed. Blessings, blessings are the merciful for those who receive mercy. Those are the peers in heart for those who see God. Blessings are the peaceful for those to be called sons or God. Blessings are those who are persecuted from righteousness sake for those in kingdom of heaven. Blessings are with blessings are when others feel you and prostitute you and wait one minute. Oh, we feel you and prosecute you and you wait, bro, I'm getting off. I'm sorry. All kind of evil against you and fear you on your mind account. Rejoice and be glad for your void and great in heaven. For those particularly the prophet will be for you. Y'all give CJ one more hand. That's not easy to do. For real, that's not easy to do. You think it's easy and then you get up here and you get a little shaky and your voice starts trembling a little bit, right? Amen. Um, but good morning. Good to see everybody. Y'all were supposed to have Daniel, but um, I'm sort of pinch hitting. He got sick last minute, and so y'all are stuck with me, and I with you, which is normally, that's a, no, I'm just playing. No, it's a good thing, which normally is fine, but I actually, am I got to be honest, I'm a little more insecure today, because last time I was up here, I was doing my thing, and um, I think I was doing prayer and praise, and I went up to the junior hires after to do our lesson, and one of them leans over to me, they'll name remain unnamed, he says, how come when you go up on stage, you're so much more boring? <laughs> yeah, that, that was a punch to the ego. And, but being the, the emotionally intelligent adult, I said, well, then you go up there, man. <laughs> you be charismatic and engaging and fun. And... No, I didn't say that. But anyway, it's good to be with y'all. Will you pray with me? God, it is a gift to gather together as a body and imperfect and wounded body, but to collectively say, God, we need you. We need you. We want you. We can't do this without you. Would you help us? Would you transform us? Would you change us? So, God, I ask right now that your spirit, your Holy Spirit, would animate our imaginations, that this text that CJ just read would come alive, that it would become a moving and living word for us, that it that we might encounter you through it. God, we are in, I, I'll just speak for me, I am in desperate need of the liberation that can come only from you. So may the words of my mouth and with the meditations of all our hearts here today be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord. Amen and amen. So as CJ just read, blessed, blessed. Blessed. 
the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, and the insulted, blessed, blessed. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, and the insulted. If you were counting, those are nine statements, nine short pronouncements, nine quick proclamations from the Jewish man from Galilee that had everybody coming in droves to see across regions. And it's probably his most famous words, arguably you may, maybe you're a worshiper of Jesus, maybe you're familiar to the Christian tradition, so you worship Jesus, but maybe if you don't, you've probably still heard these words. Or maybe you think he's an intriguing moral teacher. That means you've probably heard these. We usually lift these out of context as a, as a cool moral idea that Jesus is giving. Or maybe he's just an interesting historical figure from within the Roman Empire. He's kind of a cool philosopher. But in any case, you've probably, my suspicion is that you've heard these statements. Statements we label the Beatitudes. These are called the Beatitudes, and they begin Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5 through 7 in Matthew. And it's sort of like his first recorded public debut sermon. And it's on a mountain. And I don't know about you, but for the majority of my life, I've read the Sermon on the Mount, of which these blessings are the beginning. And I realized, I, literally, I just realized this yesterday, that I make two very curious interpretive assumptions. I make two curious interpretive assumptions when I approach this text. I've done this up until literally yesterday, so stay with me. So the first one, ready? That when the text, both in Matthew and in Luke's account, you can find the similar version of the story in Luke 6. It correlates with Matthew 5. In these accounts, the text is referring, when it refers to the disciples, I make the assumption that he's referring to these 12 select, chosen, cream of the crop young men. I make the assumption that when Jesus opens his mouth and gives his first publicly recorded sermon on the side of that mountain, it is apart from all the annoying regulars. It's apart from all the groupies. It's aside from all the unclean people, the weirdos, the dispossessed, removed from all the spiritually immature people. It's away from all the really messy people, all the complainers. It's, all, it's away from all the vocationally confused people. There's no immunocompromised people there. No, no, no. In my head, when I normally read this, it's just Jesus and 12 other young dudes. A couple of them were fishermen, maybe a zealot or something. Okay, so that's the first assumption that I make. Are y'all with me? The second assumption that I usually make when I come to this text. I tend to see the Beatitudes, again, Beatitudes is this section, that's what we're calling it. The Beatitudes, I see them as a nice, clean series of moral prescriptions. I see them as a nice, clean series of moral prescriptions. For most of my life, I go to Matthew 5, yep, okay, Beatitudes, and I see them as like concise, nine bullet point, moral, ethical to-do list. Okay, God, I need to be poor in spirit. I should probably be humble. I need to cry more to be a mourner, whatever that means. I should probably develop a hunger and thirst for justice and righteousness. Uh, I need to be a better peacemaker. So in essence, I've turned the Beatitudes into spiritual and moral, an instruction manual. 
but as you can guess where I'm going, I want to suggest today that I and probably we are missing something that's actually right there in front of us. It's right there if we only slowed down and we zoomed out just a little bit. And perhaps what we often miss about this gorgeous and haunting, haunting text is really the whole point. So I just want to submit to you today two, here's a big word, recalibrations. Turn to your neighbor and say recalibrations. Vocab word for some people. For most of us, really, I had to look it up. Two recalibrations. The first one, are you ready? The first one, who was actually there? Who was actually there on the side of that mountain? I'm convinced that asking this question, who was there, and who was Jesus really speaking to in the sermon, who was really on the side of that mountain, it will completely radicalize our understanding of these Beatitudes. And I'll also just say, as as an aside, it tends to always be an equitable, space-making, and liberative question wherever you are in life, in whatever space you are, to ask the question, who was really there? Who's really, who, okay, who was in that conversation? Who, who was in the room? All right, right, and by extension, also ask, who, who wasn't there? Right, who, who, who was in the room? Who was on the side of that mountain? So if you remember, we're going to have to go back one week. So if you remember back to last week, we were in chapter 4, which comes before chapter 5. And we remember and we read that Jesus is going to, do we have a slide for those last few verses in in chapter 4? If not, that's okay. Yeah, do we? It's okay if we don't. Yes, here it is. Okay, oh, all right. I hope y'all caught that. All right. Jesus was going through Galilee, going through all these regions. He takes a walk by a lake. And what is he doing? I mean, you guys saw it. What is he doing? (laughs) So he's healing. He's healing. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Ding, ding, ding. That's kind of Jesus' favorite thing in Matthew. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. For Jesus in Matthew, it's all about the kingdom. That's what comes and is ushered in with Jesus. The kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. Curing every disease, every sickness among the people. So his fame, imagine that. He gets famous. I wonder why, because he's healing all these people. His fame spreads throughout Syria. People bring to him sick. And who's among these crowds? This is going to be important when we get to chapter 5. Seriously. Who's in these crowds? People with various diseases, pains, demoniacs, right? people who are spiritually oppressed, epileptics, people whose bodies are hurting and not working correctly, paralytics, and he cured them, it says in verse 24. And so, this is the last verse before our reading for today, and great crowds followed him from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan, okay? So basically, everyone all over is coming, and it's specifically people who have serious ailments, injuries, are in need of some serious liberation. Does that make sense? So we get to chapter 5, and it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, so now we know who's in the crowds, he went up to the mountain and he sat down, 
And then here's the important part. His disciples, his disciples came to him and began to speak. And this is where my assumption jumps in. Now, for some reason, the, the crowd just like is omitted and falls out. And it's just, okay, now it's just Jesus and the 12 again. But remember, actually, in the chapter before this, how many disciples have been called so far? Are there 12 disciples yet? Does Jesus have an inner crew of 12 young men in chapter 4 or chapter 5? No. He's called four, right? He's called two fishermen and two other fishermen with their dad. So perhaps in this text, when we read disciples, we should think somewhat what we think of when we say disciple today. I consider myself a disciple. Maybe some of you do too. That means what? I'm trying to be a follower of Jesus. I seek with all my life to follow Jesus. So perhaps in this text also, the disciples, when they came to him and he began to speak, it's that crowd. And who's in that crowd? Okay, so what? Cool. Okay, maybe disciples mean something more than just 12 guys. How does that change anything? Well, if you think about it, and this is rare for most of us, but if you're healthy, integrated, and you're showing up authentically, I gave the caveat, that's rare. If you're showing up healthy, integrated, and authentic, the kind of people who are drawn to you says something significant about who you are. Yes or no? The kind of people who are drawn to you when you're showing up authentically says something about who you are, I think, profoundly. And who is desperately flocking to Jesus? What is it about this carpenter, itinerant preacher that people who can barely walk are walking across regions to get to him? I mean, seriously, sit with this. Whose attention does Jesus' upside-down message capture the most? Who is Jesus captivating here? It's poor people. It's people with their backs against the wall. If you've ever read Howard Thurman, he would put it that way. It's people with the weight of life crushing their necks. It's colonized people. It's people with EBT cards. It's people in over-policed neighborhoods. It's people hurting with spiritual oppression. It's people with demons. It's people who are marginalized. It's people pushed to the edge. People plagued with disease and disorder. It's homeless people. It's people whose bodies aren't working. In other words, vulnerable people. Are y'all getting this? See, it's the outcasts who Jesus is always, always primarily wanting and choosing to build with. I'll say that again. It is the outcasts and the push aside who Jesus is always choosing to build with first, always. It is not people at the epicenter of power or privilege. So I know I'm belaboring the point, but if we miss this, I really think if we miss who's on the side of the mountain, we're going to miss what is at the heart of Jesus' message of the kingdom. And that isn't Jesus' message, the message of the, the kingdom. If we miss who's on the side of the mountain, we miss the central tenet of the message of the kingdom. So it's good news for everybody. It is. It's good news for everybody. Oh, but it's really good news, especially for certain people. It's really good news for the sick and the wounded and the people in prison or the people who don't have enough to eat. So someone in the background of this sermon who's really important, I think, if you have time, you should look him up. His name's the Reverend Dr. James Cohn. Right? So he's sort of the, the father of what we would call 
black liberation theology. And he's making the point better than I am that the primary activity and mission of God in the world is liberation for oppressed people. How we understand God can be seen in how the little ones, he calls them, the little ones, the vulnerable ones are treated in God's way. So if you have a time, just look up the name James Cone, C-O-N-E. Okay, that's the first recalibration. Does that make sense? Who was there? Who really was there? The second one. What is Jesus actually saying? What is Jesus actually saying? And just slow down with me. I mean, what is he really saying? It's right there in front of us, but I think in part because of our our kind of modern, Western, solution-oriented minds, we have a hard time sitting with it. And it doesn't seem intuitive. So for most of my life, I've read these nine statements. And it's just an ethical checklist, okay? So I become poor, and then I get to inherit the kingdom, right? I become a mourner, and I'll, I'll get to be comforted. If I become meek, I'll inherit the earth. So on and so on. Check. Check. Done it. Check. Check. Remember, there's a parable about that. The rich man did everything he was supposed to. And all of a sudden, I've missed exactly the point of what Jesus is doing. And I've actually forgotten who Jesus is actually speaking to, okay? So as much as we want it to be one, to be one big holy how-to, right? We often want that. We want a holy how-to to be Christian. How to be Christian. It's not. These words are not moral prescriptions. I know that's a hard reframe, but they are not moral prescriptions prescriptions that we master and then accomplish. And so often we would rather have moral mandates from God than a blessing from God. Because that feels more comfortable. We would rather have moral mandates from God than a blessing from God. As if transformation happens by our own accomplishment. As if transformation can happen by our own performance. As if transformation can happen by our own merit. But what this beloved and wounded crowd receives is neither a moral instruction book or a how to get out of hell free card. No, this mountainside preacher waits for the crowd to settle. And just as he's about to to begin his first public sermon ever, He catches the eye of a woman in the third row, and they share a tender glance. And Jesus knows she's there because she's lost everything. Perhaps just the night before, her son was beat to death by the Roman imperial guard, and he was just trying to get home. And then he opens his mouth calmly with an authority from heaven and utters a blessing over her. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. The kingdom belongs to you. Now there's tears in both of their eyes, I imagine. And then Jesus turns to the back of the crowd and there's 10 feet of space between this one person and there's a perimeter between him and everyone else. 
as if he himself is a disease. And Jesus locks eyes with that man who is suffering more than anyone knows. And again, with an authority only from heaven, Jesus speaks a blessing over this man. Blessed are you, beloved, you who mourn, for you will be comforted. Isn't it curious that the first things out of Jesus' mouth in his first public sermon, it's not a charismatic joke. It's not a nice hook or a good cliffhanger or a good buildup like they teach you in storytelling or preaching class or something. No. Jesus begins with what? A blessing of vulnerable people. I mean, think about like the utter tender love of that. I mean, if you can kind of picture that. I mean, think about the, the sheer, the intimacy. And really quickly, whenever you see the word blessing in the Bible, because we haven't talked about what that means, blessing in the Bible is always a declaration over somebody's life, speaking over someone's life, sort of a whole-scale shalom, a peace over your life, tranquility over your life, wholeness, completeness. That's what it means to be blessed. So it has nothing to do with sort of the, the wacky American idea of, oh, they're blessed, so be blessed. You're blessed if you have a big house and a dog. Not really. Or at least according to Jesus. So to bless someone is to speak over their life an abiding peace and a completeness. Again, nothing to do with one's accomplishments or performance. And so on that mountainside, Jesus chooses to pronounce shalom and blessing over a crowd of people for whom the world was anything but peaceful, for whom there was anything but shalom. And Jesus makes that decision to bless a crowd that by all worldly standards were cursed. And Jesus stands up on the side of that mountain and returns to these people dignity and reminds them and returns them to their unshakable value, their utter belovedness in the eyes of God. So what is Jesus actually saying to return to that basic question? Well, he's blessing, he's blessing suffering people in the moment, in the moment of their suffering. So there may be moral and ethical implications. I'm not saying that there's not things to derive that have implications for how we live and how we act. There are, of course. But do not miss that at the heart of this, it is a blessing of suffering people. What a beautiful God that is, huh? I mean, really, when I, when I just sit with that, I was just literally thinking about this yesterday. Like, that is a beautiful God. Utterly beautiful. The one we have. A God who doesn't so much tell people what to do, but reminds them who they are first. That's what a blessing is. You know that. A return to who you are. In truth. One who centers people on the periphery and one who puts on the periphery those who would be in the center. So, those are my two recalibrations. If you put them together and you kind of take a step back 
and you zoom out and you slow down a little bit, you might realize, oh my goodness, this is the God we've had all along, isn't it? This is the one who was with the Israelites and the one who delivered them out of slavery. It sounds like that God. This mountainside preacher is the Yahweh God, always spoken about in the Hebrew scripture. This is the God who was with Tamar and who was with Rahab and who was with Queen Esther and who was with Deborah. This is the God who spoke to Amos. This is the God who was with Micah. This is the God who was with Isaiah. Wasn't it Isaiah? Was that Isaiah 61? Does that not sound uncanny and cannily similar? Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. Jesus quotes this. Because the Lord has anointed me to what? To proclaim good news to who? The poor. He has sent me to bind up who? The brokenhearted. To proclaim freedom for who? The captives. Release from darkness for who? The prison. I swear, it's that once you see it, you can't unsee it. That's the beautiful thing. To comfort all who mourn. This is Isaiah and Jesus. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Oil of joy instead of mourning a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting for the Lord, a display of his splendor. That's the prophet Isaiah. And that's fulfilled and embodied in the person we call Jesus. So you may be thinking in your head right now, okay, Benjamin, it's good, but I'm going to be real with you. Um, I'm a white person in sort of a white supremacist world, and so things work for me, and I'm a straight guy, and I come from a stable background, and I'm upwardly mobile, and I'm highly educated. So what does this mean for me? What does this mean for me? I don't know if I would have been in that crowd. Ready? This is going to be big. I don't know. I don't know specifically. I don't know specifically how God will reveal herself to you. I don't know specifically how God will push you into the crowd. I don't know how God will move you towards the margins, but I trust that God will, should you listen. So I don't know specifically how it will look for you. That's not me trying to get out of the whole application question. It's me being honest. But I do know that in my life, I've had some serious, profound, earth-shattering experiences that have put me on the right direction. And I'll share one with you to close. One where it became overwhelmingly clear this idea of Jesus' kingdom and what that might mean and how it's reversal of everything I know was when I worked uh, in Tijuana. So I was down um, just below the border of San Diego, so in the United States and Mexico. And I was working sort of as a social worker, and part of my job was to kind of process and do the intake and welcome 
um, refugees and asylum seekers coming up from South America and Central America. And that was half of it. The other half was to process and welcome people who had just been deported. So ICE would literally, and this was in 2019, this is sort of the height of the, um, height of the immigration crisis. And so they would just dump off a whole um, van load of people who were just deported. They didn't even have shoelaces in their shoes because they take them from you at the border. And every day, so I worked there for a few months, and every single day in about the middle of my eight-hour shift, I would become overwhelmed, and I'd sprint up to my little room because I had a room there, and I'd run to the bathroom, and I would just cry. I literally did that for like 45 days straight. I would go in the middle of my shift. I, w- I wouldn't know what to do, and I'd run up, and I would just cry. And then one day near the end of the summer, One day near the end of the summer, I went up to that bathroom to cry. And I literally saw something that was like Isaiah 61. And I saw this banquet table. And there was Jesus, and then there was a bunch of people around the table. And then I got a glimpse of their faces, and it was all of these men and women that I was with all summer. Literally, like I saw their faces, and they were cloaked in white, and they had these Uh, beautiful plant-like crowns, literally. And the curious thing, and this is where it relates back to me, is it was interesting to note my own vantage point. I was there, but I was on my tippy toes in the back. I really was. And I was sort of peering in on the scene like this. And that's, the, that's what I'm trying to get at, is when you see it, you can't unsee it. I don't know what that might mean. Maybe that's so vague and weird. But the point is, I think there is, you can be proximate and you can be there and it's not you being centered and that's okay. Does that make sense? Because in that moment, like in, in sort of the dream, it was like I was fully, I was completely content getting the little glimpse that I had. It was more than enough. So that's what I'm kind of trying to get at towards that last question. What does this mean for me? I don't know how it'll look. But it might look something like that. Just you getting a appearing of this beautiful image in which you're, you're included, but you probably won't be centered. Who cares? It's fine. You'll be all right. And then lastly, for those who resonate with the crowd, you who suffer, the unfairly treated, the sick and tired of being sick and tired, know that God is simply speaking over your life a blessing and offering to you a tender glance, a tender, tender glance of compassion. Amen.